RDI Insights. Mike Dempsey in conversation with Royal Designers. Hello and welcome to the RDI Insights podcast series, where I will be interviewing major figures in the design industry who have been made RSA Royal Designers for Industry, the highest accolade for a designer in the UK. The award was introduced in 1936 to highlight and honour the work of industrial designers for their sustained creative excellence and benefit to society. My guest today is the architectural designer John Pawson. For over three decades, he has been dedicated to eliminating the unnecessary in the spaces and buildings he designs. His creative path was long and winding before he finally found his passion in architecture. He first came to notice in the early 80s when he redesigned his girlfriend's flat, resulting in an intense sense of calm and absence. These minimal spaces, along with his attention to detail and materials used, became his hallmark and his practice organically grew, with a list of clients wanting his particular vision brought to their worlds, and included Calvin Klein, who arrived unannounced one day at John's practice and commissioned him to design his flagship New York store. That spawned many clients, including the international hotelier Ian Schlager and the arrival of a group of Cistercian monks to his office, with a very special project on offer. So join me now to hear John Pawson's frank, funny and personal reflection on his life. Our conversation took place remotely with me in Dorset and John at his home in the Cotswolds. I started by asking John about the design of his country retreat, where he lives with his interior designer wife, Catherine. Retreat is quite a, is quite a good term for it. Actually. You started your practice by kind of reworking uh, the flat you were sharing with, with Hester uh, Van Royen back in, in the 80s. And I remember seeing that flat because it was publicised quite, quite a lot at the time. And I think the essence of that early thinking has kind of unfolded throughout all of your work. So I, I would think Home Farm must be really for you the kind of sub- summation of your thinking because it's your home and obviously Catherine, who is your wife and she is an interior designer well so could you you know paint a picture of what you had to do and where it is and and so forth well i think when i mean when you say summation of everything i mean i think it, every every project we do or every project i do i tend to think of it as my own even though it's obviously you know a client's you know own thoughts and feelings that go into it but it's but i sort of treat everything very quite personally I mean, the only difference with this project, doing doing our own home, was that um, I could take more risks, I suppose, than I would, you know, with, with the clients. And you have no client meetings, of course. Maybe uh, a, <coughs> apart from the parish council, perhaps. <laughs> um, well, you know, <laughs> a lot of the planners here. But, of course, e- even if it's for yourself, you know, obviously what Catherine thinks is really important and she's... A fantastic contributor and i ask my children and they come up with all sorts of things like saunas in the in the pond and quad bikes all the wrong things I, I noticed that in in another photograph you you had designed a chair called tacta is that correct yes. and yes. i saw 
that you replaced the Hans Wegener wishbone chairs. Was that just for a photograph, or do you now have those chairs as your permanent fixture? Well, they very they very kindly uh, gave me the eight chairs, which was was very generous. And I, and I'm, I'm, I suppose I'm try, trying them out. It's the litmus test. I think they look actually very beautiful. I have to say, and and I know. You mentioned in an earlier interview that at some point everybody has to design a chair. And I've often thought, why? Because there are so many beautiful chairs. But I think you've cracked it with that one because it is extremely attractive. I I hope it works as well for you as as the Hans Wegner ones. The jury's slightly out. It's a hell of a chair to put it up against. But the chair that we've done does work, which is uh, was, was quite a relief. I mean, it is, it's the hardest thing of all, isn't it? I mean, I've fought shy of doing a chair. I mean, I've tried on paper and I've tried the odd prototype in the last 40 years. And, and this is the first time we've actually done something, you know, that has been manufactured and made and sold and, and sort of tested. Let's leave the John Pawson as you are now with, what is it, 433,000 Instagram followers? <laughs> I think almost 300 projects under your belt and 24 book, many awards, role designer, CVE. So let's park that and go back to when you were born, which is 6th of May 1949 in Halifax, Yorkshire, into what I understand a fairly wealthy family. Your father James and mother Winifred were both from, I think, a dynasty of of textile industry uh, manufacturers, um, which your father continued to, to run. Anyway, you were the youngest of five children. You have four sisters, Jane, Rachel, Janet and Diana. And you lived in Smith House in Lightfield, kind of a rambling 17th century stone-built property. What was life like with four older sisters? Were you kind of their pet sort of thing? Yeah, they're, they're, they're actually, <laughs> I mean, I, well, of course, I, my, my thing is that I, that I was bullied mercilessly. But of course, the, the, their recollection is that I was spoiled terribly. But, um, but they, it, was, it was jolly nice. It was quite a feminine sort of, um, you know, warm and, and sort of friendly and... and you know, they were jolly nice. Um, they're actually my half-sisters. I, I, know, I didn't find out. My mother didn't tell me till I was, I think, in my early teens that actually her husband had been killed in the war and my father's wife had, had died of meningitis. So oh dear. they both had two daughters each and they got together and then, and then had me. So they've got a kind of mix and match family. Yeah, but uh, but the deal with my that my parents had was that everyone would be treated equally, and um, so it, you know they were just sisters. They weren't they weren't half sisters or stepsisters or you know. At a, at a fairly young age, you were you were sent off to board at um, I think it's called Malsip Prep Morsip, School. Yeah. Morsip. Yeah. How, how was that? What, how old were you when you actually went off? Seven, because I, I was sort of, because I, I was born in May, I think it, it somehow, you know, I was you know, one of the youngest in the class. Oh, right. Because I don't know how it worked, but um, I always seemed to be sort of a year younger than the others. How, how was that experience for you? I've spoken to others in interviews and it seems to vary enormously. And so I'm interested to know how you coped suddenly being away from your home and your sister's. Well, it was very odd. It was, it was very odd. I mean, the, certainly the first night was was very weird. But you just, you know, I just, you just sort of got on with it, I guess. I mean, I think it was harder for other people. I mean, I, I didn't find it so bad. And, and it's like later on, you know, with bullying, 
you know, you, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a terrible thing that happens and, mm. and you always feel that you should have stood out more against it. When it happened to you, I mean, I tended to sort of think that it was, I mean, flattering is not quite the right word, but I mean, you know, to, I just saw it as, as getting a bit of attention, actually. Obviously, you had to, you you came home for various breaks, whether that you know the weekends or or certainly holidays, and you it sounded to me reading about you as if you had rather wonderful family holidays with with your father occasionally chartering a plane down to Cornwall, which sounds amazing. <laughs> um, well, I mean, Dad was a you know, Dad was a bit flash t- too. I mean, I think that I got. I mean, part of me is my father, obviously, and. I mean, my my mother was genuinely a very modest person, even though she came from, you know, actually a, a more materially wealthy background than my father. Right. Um, but but um, no, he he he, li- he liked those sort of good things. Well, then, of course, a little later on, when you were thirteen, you you were shipped off to Eton. Yes, I mean, the, uh, I mean, Dad went to uh, Rossell, which was a. Um, uh, boarding school in 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 Lancashire on uh, near Fleetwood on on the sea, uh, but he th- he thought Eton might be even better. He he, he just was interested in what what was, he was on superlatives. I think he put your name down very when when you were very young, didn't he? Didn't he? Well, you th- that that was what you had to do to. If, you, if you if you wanted to try and get a place. So he 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 he, he travelled down with Mum and to to be interviewed by. A master who was um, collecting a list for to be a future house master, and w- when the guy opened the door, my father, of course, thought thought it, it was the house master's son because he, <laughs> he was so young. But um, yeah, I mean, so. this was your main education, really, I guess. So, what what was it like? I mean, give us a. It, it was my main education because I didn't, I didn't, I didn't do, um, I didn't do terribly well with. I had a, a problem with exams, so I never really. I got some O levels, but I, I, I did. Um, so you were not very academic, really. Is that what you're saying? It was not your. I don't know what it was. I mean, I'm not dyslexic, and I don't really have learning difficulties. I, I mean, I don't know whether it was. I just. It was not something that. You know that I enjoyed, mm. or you know, the, the subjects weren't the subjects I was interested in. I suppose I don't know. I, mean, I, I think it, it was, was there that, that you were bullied. You 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 said. I think that's where the bullying came in. And I think did did they not also have still have corporal punishment there, caning that sort of thing? Yes. Again, you know, I just thought that was. I mean, I mean, you have bullying throughout. Your yeah. life, I think. I mean, and you you have to try and stand up, mm. and you have to stand up for other people. But um, I guess it, it it was more recognisable at that age, mm. and, and 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 corporal punishment was still thought of as being, you know, a way to deal with you know discipline. I suppose. I mean, I I just thought. Again, I thought, I, you know, I quite liked the attention, but I mean, it must have been, you know, for some boys, I could see it was, you know, very damaging. As you sort of hinted earlier, your grades were not good at Eton. You, you obviously couldn't go off to university because you didn't have, you know, what was necessary. But you decided to go off on a bit of a global trek. Yeah, well, it was, it was, you know, it was, the, it was 66. It was the start of the sort of hippie movement. 
But you're only 17. Uh, but, you're 18, weren't you? Yes, but my contemporaries were 18, if you see. Yeah, you know, I do. Yeah, yeah. 18, but, uh, yeah. Yeah, I guess, I guess you... Yeah, it was interesting that my parents, who were always very concerned for me or about me, didn't see, t- seem to think it was quite normal for me <laughs> to, to hitchhike to, um, you know, to India and beyond. So it was just a sort of curious... I mean, it was that hippie trail. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, I, Afghanistan and all yeah. those places. But you went on, didn't you, to go further? I spent six six months in India and then ended up in Sydney in Australia and eventually uh, eventually got a telegram from my father saying if I didn't come back, there wouldn't be a place for me in the family business. You did I have to come back. back. I did have to come back. And but didn't it, wasn't it via uh, 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 the States, didn't you? Weren't you there briefly? I wanted to see... My sister was in, in uh, Virginia with her husband because he, he, they were in a the hospital there. He was a doctor. And then, and then I went to New York to look up Liza Minnelli, who I'd, I'd spent time with in, in Sydney, uh, where she, I'd met her through my Australian girlfriend, who was her sister-in-law, her, hus- her husband at the time's sister. So we sort of hung out a bit there. I mean, that she was... I mean, I was 17, but she was only 21. Um, so I had, a, I had quite a fun time in New York. But then I, I came back to um, Yorkshire and uh, went straight up to my father's factory in, in Washington County, Durham. I think that you were there in all for another six years at the factory. Uh, I was, yeah. Thought, and and yeah. you did various things. I've seen a photograph of you holding up a sketch of a dress because you, I think some clo- clothing was made. And I think the idea was that you were, I don't know whether it was you or whether the idea was to bring out sort of more trendy clothes that were more in connection with what was going on at that time. I mean, six years is a long time. So you must have really got into that world. I tried my best. I mean, you know, I, I was very, very fond of my father and he was very charismatic. We spent time, I spent time up in the factory in New, near Newcastle and then and then more time in Halifax, which was the headquarters. And then eventually in, we had a showroom in London. Um, so I got, eventually got down there. So, if, if, I mean, six years is, is, is a long time, but I guess it, it sort of, it just went by, but yeah. it, it took a long time to realise that it, it, you know, it wasn't for me. I suppose I, I could have, you know, it could have been foreseen. Did you enjoy any of it, really? I must have, but I mean, I, but a, a lot of boredom and uh, a lot of kind of outside London, mm. you know, in a, in a sense, and London's so different. I don't regret having, you know, lived in these places. It's just, and, and boredom has a, a strange way of making you dream. Or- yeah, you started to, I think, meet more interesting people for you. Anyway, I think some from Japan. And I think there was uh, in your book that Morris and Mary Pinder, mm. who taught at Newcastle School of Art or College of Art, became friends. And so perhaps your creative, you know, mind was beginning to, you know, the antennae started to go up and you were making some early sort of connections. I think so. They, they introduced me or the, the director introduced me to, to Domus magazine. And that was a revelation in a way. And that's where I first saw Kuramata's um, work. Yeah, the Japanese yeah. design, which we'll talk about a little later. Yeah. I think it was, you'd, you'd seen a documentary, which I think you said about Buddhist monks, which sort of rather intrigued you. And, and I think you decided that 
that's for you to be a Buddhist monk. <laughs> and so, you, and so well, I was twenty. I was twenty-four, going on about twelve. I think, yeah. Because I mean, I was like, how I possibly thought I could, you know, as a Zen reach a sort of state of enlightenment as a Zen Buddhist monk. But do know. tell the story because I think it's it's a well, great story. <laughs> tell me. No, well, I'd seen this film, and I, I, you know, I can't find this documentary at all. But it was, it, I think it was, it was either Tony Richardson or Tony. I tried to find it too. I couldn't. One, of, one, not maybe not either of those two. There is a Tony uh, Richardson who is a uh, is an expert in this area, so I think he had the same name as the British director. But anyway, do t- tell us. No, well, I, th- I think, and I, th- I think the monastery was Aheji in the north of Japan, and it's uh, very beautiful. And the, the Zen Buddhist monks practice kendo as a as a as a just physical training. You know, it was winter, and the, the film was really beautiful. And I thought, oh, everything was going wrong. You know, I was, I mean, Dad had said, you know, maybe this isn't working, and there, you know, there isn't really. You know, I'm going to close down the the company you were running. I, that I was running, and uh, and then I it looked as if I mean my plans to get married to my fiance that wasn't working either. So having lost both those things, I I headed off to Japan to this to, you know to try and enter this monastery, which I did. But of course, the reality hit me in the in the middle of the night, and I, I suddenly woke up and realised what an idiot you know how how could I possibly you know survive or well could you describe what the routine was because i think that's the thing well, i mean you, you you arrive and they say you know they don't even say hello they just sort of you're you're let in i mean it had been, it had been arranged for me through a friend and who had a connection and so they they just took you and you could just get assigned to start scrubbing the um you know the corridor the floors and the st- stairs of the corridor and uh, and you get a sort of bowl of of hot it seemed like hot water <laughs> and there's a there's a room full of other guys if eventually you can sleep but um it wasn't so much the physical uh, hardship as, as as you know i mean i suppose that's what daydream or dreaming is is you so detached from reality that you think you know i traveled all the way to japan and all the way to this monastery only to realize that within minutes that i completely made the wrong <laughs> decision <laughs> luckily not too many people knew that, that that's what i was up to. you then stayed on and and you i think you started to teach english didn't you at um, nagoya yes. in yeah, the, nagoya yeah in nagoya that's my, my that was my other contact one was a japanese friend whose father was a, a buddhist monk and the other was um, a, a woman whose father-in-law was uh, taught at this university and they were looking for a an Englishman to teach English. But you didn't speak Japanese? How, how do you do that? How, how do well, you I speak? spoke English. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, if they didn't understand English, I don't, I don't know how it would work. Well, no, they, 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 well, the, student, the students didn't, no. no. But I, th- I think that they, they, had ja- they had Japanese teachers who could who Oh, interpret, teach. yeah. Well, no, who did teach English. But they, they wanted... They want a sort of an example of, uh, I, uh, I suppose, inverted commas, the real thing or something. They wanted somebody who spoke English. And they, and there was some confusion because they they thought Eton was a university. And print, they printed me a, a card with uh, Eton BA ons after it. And um, 
And I didn't, I never really, I thought it would be balanced to put out to them. But anywhere else that I, I helped hire all had to have first-class degrees from Oxford. And then at a pinch, Cambridge. I mean, they were very, you know, they, they, they did like, um, you know, titles or whatever. That, whatever. You often would go off on little trips to other parts and you would stay in traditional Ryakan inns. Can you describe those for listeners? Well, the, what what was wonderful about uh, about the job was you get you got a lot of time off, and also I had some very very nice students who helped me get around. So we we used to do these. Um, long weekends in very remote places in Japan where to begin with I went in to the to the to the very modest inn and tried to ask if there was a room but of course as soon as they saw you coming you know they they've the reception was empty <laughs> they, they were they were too scared <laughs> well first of all they didn't speak English and then the, to see a foreigner turn up in the middle of nowhere they they thought must be something wrong <laughs> And then I and then I try and send my students in, and they say, "Well, we haven't booked." And I said, "Well, they might have a room." And they said, "No, no, we haven't booked." <laughs> and I said, "Well, why don't you go and ask them?" No, no, we can't do that. That's not so, you know, that's so not, Japanese. So that's you know that wouldn't be polite. Anyway, I finally shouted at them. So we we got a system going where we we managed to find these exquisite places, which were so modest and and. And, and of course, it, it was a, it was a nice thing that they they never had foreigners there before, you know. So you did feel somehow that it was authentic. It was sort of part of. It was like sort of going back a couple of hundred years. Do you feel that in any way those simple interior spaces, particularly you know where you sleep with a, a futon, little else? I mean, basically screens. That it was. It sort of made a connection with you that that it had a you know a more profound effect on you that simplicity of those inns. Well, I, th- I think, I mean, yes, I mean, obviously absorbing the way Japanese uh, people live and have lived, yes, um, you know, over the several centuries, you know, and the bathing and the mm. and that, setting out the bed in the middle of the room and. And you know, and the and the feeling of space, and, and having your head sort of free. I mean, that, if, if they they were all wonderful things. And when I when I got back from Japan after I think nearly five years away, I I managed to keep going in London for for three years, sort of with futon and sleeping in the middle of the room, and and then and eventually became you know it, it, it suits Japan, and they and they make it they make it happen. Difficult to translate it over here. I have a Japanese uh, daughter-in-law, so I've been a few times and and absolutely was astonished by just the grace and charm of the people. It does make you think differently, that's for sure. While you were there, of course, you you also freelanced as a photographer. Because I find sketching difficult, um, even before I got into architecture, I would always take photographs to remind myself or to and to sort of explain to other people um, stuff, and then I use, I use them with the students. I was always sort of photographing. And socially, I met a, um, a guy that had an agency of photographers and, you know, and a library and, and an agency because he sold, sold the photographs. And he, he, he sent me back to Europe to photograph 
sporting events and um, I mean they're very very generous they tend to give you the money before you 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 do it and, and the expenses and of, of course I came back with all these photographs of, of you know the uh, Grand Prix race but of course I was more interested in the detail of the the wing of the car sunlight on the chrome or something and he he wondered why i hadn't taken a picture of the finish i think you moved on to tokyo didn't you in your final sort of yeah period it took, there. took me ages but i finally got you had a, a reason for being there because you wanted to by this time i think you'd seen the work of shiro kuramata the japanese designer and architect and you wanted to meet him well you know typical um naive sort of uh, or you know arrogant englishman i i just i just rang him up and said you know I, any chance of meeting up and i i guess he th- he thought i i must be somebody somebody or some somebody that he couldn't say no to so he was or he was curious or one of those two things so we, we ended up having um coffee and he brought uh, masayuki kurakawa kisho's um, brother who spoke english or spoke was quite fluent in English. He brought him with him, and he and Kurokawa Masayuki was also very sort of sophisticated. So he was able to suss what what was going on a bit more. But he was very charming about it all. It all it all went rather well. And then I sort of kept in touch with Kuramata during the year in Tokyo, and he 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 was so generous. He invited me to all the sort of um, openings of things that he designed or other mm. people had designed and 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 if you if you sort of got that introduction at that level everybody else that you met was on what was as, as good in their field as he was in his so mm. you met isazaki or you know and designers and so it was, it was um it was a great time but it was not working eventually you you you, you can't sort of spend a year not not really mm. working although i managed it nearly Nearly, yeah. I, I think uh, Shiro basically said, "You've got to go to, you've got to go to an art, architectural school. You've got to, you've got to do something. Well, you've got to do it yourself. Yeah. yeah. Stop, stop, stop hanging around me and go and." So you went back to to the UK, and I think what you were age twenty nine, nineteen seventy eight. You, yeah. You joined the architectural London Architectural Association in Bedford Square. And I think you were probably one of the oldest students there, weren't you? Without doubt, yeah. 30 doesn't seem very old now, but no, it was then. Well, a lot of the students weren't even 20. So they were all doing their thing, i.e. not working or coming in late or, you know, having a good time. <laughs> Learning about life. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. I just wanted to learn about architecture, but, it's, but I, I sort of, you know, I sort, sort of tried to learn to fit in. Did you get anything out of it? I mean, did you? Definitely, you did. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing I learned was ha- was that you can learn how to design. Just thought it's something you have or not. And um, but I was t- I was taught how to design, which was which I was obviously was was very fortunate. Well, this this is where we kind of move into your practice, if you like, because you met and moved in with Hester Van Royen, who was your girlfriend at the time. And she was an art dealer, still is an art dealer, I think, and went to work for Leslie Waddington and, and later had her own gallery. And the flat that she lived in and you, you moved in with her, you decided that needed some, <laughs> needed, some <laughs> needed your attention, put it that way. So what did you do? Yes, I mean, it's 
probably unforgivable. But I, I always had this thing where I, I felt incredibly strongly about my own sort of personal environment, which even even if it was only rented, it, it, it seemed very, very important for me, almost essential to to try and get it the way I liked it. Which now, of course, if it would have been perhaps as well, not you know to hold back a little bit, you know, because we were renting it. And I, I, it, it, had, it, had, some time before it had been partitioned. It was a, it was clearly a glorious room hidden um, behind a partition. So I just knocked the wall down one one day and carried out the the rubbish, you know, in in sacks in the middle of the night. Put put them in other people's skips, which I've of course since learned is incredibly irritating. If you rent a skip and somebody else puts <laughs> stuff in it, expensive these days. Yeah, very expensive. Well, even then, yeah, yeah, I'm sure. So, did you carry all that work out yourself, or did you have help? Uh, well, I, 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 the, the, some of the stuff I I I, I did myself, but I uh, 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 one of one of Hester's artists actually was um, also did house painting. And um, and carpentry and things like that, yeah. plumbing. So together, he and I and and another person managed to put it together. And that was seen by Bruce Chapwin, who I know became a good friend of yours. And he was he loved it so much that he asked you to do his flat. Yes, yeah. No, he he came around one day and he he was completely transfixed by it. He just sort of, I mean, it was a small space, but it, but he just walked around it and and was physically moved by it. And, and you know, and then we did his flat. And I think you were impressed by him, not just because of his work, but his ability to. I think you've said to articulate what your work represented in a in a really terrific way. Well, I've always thought that that you know that photographs aren't very satisfactory way. Photography is not a very satisfactory way to describe architecture. I mean, you. I mean, of course, it's much better than nothing. Yeah, but it's very difficult to convey the atmosphere. Or, I mean, people always say when they come here, you know, that, that our place in the country, that you know, it's completely different from the photographs. Which, of course, is exaggerating because, of course, it's not completely different. But there's a lot missing. I think you, you know, the three-dimensional quality to it and everything else. But Bruce could describe architecture incredibly well, mm-hmm. and um, you know, I wished he was obviously still around. I mean, obviously because I miss him, but but also because he wrote so well about architecture. You you left the A before taking your final exam for the reasons yeah, beca- that we... Becoming a, becoming a pattern. Yeah. And you've never been badged as a an architect. I mean, a lot of people refer to you as an architect or an architectural designer, but the keepers of that title can be a bit sticky, can't they, about... Um, I think Thomas Heatherwick has, has the same issue. He, he he's not a an architect either. Well, there, there's a long there's a long list which I I I haven't put together, and I'm not that sort of um, it's not my thing. But but people like Ando, or, yes, or he's terrific. Like yes. I mean, there are other quite a few other um, people who haven't technically qualified. I mean, the ARB uh, has a job to do, quite rightly, and yeah. to uphold the and protect you know the name and i i think it's quite right that that they should and I, it's just personally i never call myself an architect but it is very difficult when you're trying to describe what you do and you go in a long-winded way and, yeah and then the people 
say, oh, well, you mean architect? <laughs> and I say, well, yes, but I, you know, and then you start again, and it's sort of... But I'm not sure if it's one person, but there's somebody who, every time they, they see, you know, that a, a newspaper or something's got it wrong, you know, the, and they call me an architect, that they write into the ARB. <laughs> Nevertheless. I feel, I, I feel sorry for... I feel sorry for him or her. Yes, <laughs> they must... But nevertheless, you went on to establish your own practice, aged 32, I think, when all the other students leaving would be trying to just work with an architectural firm, as they all do. So that was quite a, a thing. Where were you based with that, with your very first sort of space to work in? I, I did, um, well, obviously, that I started on the kitchen table at, yeah. at, in Hester's flat that we'd we converted you know that we just talked about and then Hester moved to uh, another flat which we which I did and during the day we had the drawing tables out and then at, at night had to clear them away so it was quite stressful and she was very generous to let us you know work in her which was I mean technically her flat well it was her flat how many of you were at that point? Uh, well, there was uh, Claudia Silvestri and I. Oh, yes. And and then Vishwa Kashal, mm -hmm. who just come down or just come up from Bath um, School of Architecture and just qualified. And that was like in 1985 or 1984, I think. And there was a period, you just mentioned um, Claudio Silverstrin. You actually, for a brief period, were more connected, weren't you? I think you had a, that you shared the name. Yes, for, for, I remember Claudio saying, you know, I want to be a partner. And um, I, I mean, I suppose the supposition was that, oh, you know, I'll make my own way somewhere else so i said oh yeah you know no no problem at all you know you know if that's what you want to be fine and i didn't i had no idea of the strength of just saying you know that you're a partner means you are a partner and you're you know you have a 50 percent share unless you unless you set it out differently mm. it's a very and it doesn't need anything writing down particularly I mean, Claudia, you know, uh, was was introduced introduced me to so much. Mm. So, I'm, you know, that short period that we were together was was fantastic for that. It was the Neuendorf House in Mallorca, in Spain, that really, you know, became a very important project for you. It was I remember being featured a lot in magazines at the time, and you then parted company didn't you after that Claudia had a very good point because I, I I you know I was I mean going back to you know I was you know splitting up from from Hester and I didn't I didn't have any money and you know it was uh it was just it was just very stressful and I wasn't mm -hmm. concentrating on work at all and I in fact you know the reverse I was sort of really prejudicing his chances of um you know, because obviously all we wanted to do was 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 to build. Yes, and and you know, and I was sort of almost sabotaging it. Of course, that whole period in in the early days was when postmodernism was kind of at a sort of height, which is the <laughs> complete opposite to your world. I mean, postmodernism is all about sticking things on. You know, overly decorating buildings and making them bit Egyptian, bit this, bit that. And a lot of architects also at that time in the 80s didn't have very much work. It was a sort of tricky time, I think, I seem to remember. Certainly in about 86, because I was able to um, to get pretty notable architects to work on a project when we moved 
studios and bought a warehouse and David Chipperfield was available and we used David. Right. So I, I know that uh, then it was a very thin period, but I think you, you seem to quietly carry on. Yes, I mean, I, we didn't talk about it, but I mean, I I never sort of, I didn't have a game plan. Mm. Was, I didn't think, well, I, I you know, I, I never thought that I would end up in practice. I, I thought, you know, that I, I was just interested in architecture. I didn't necessarily think, you know, if, 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 you know, I started doing the odd thing, but I, I mean, I remember I, I was, a, a, I had this aversion to files or filing anything. <laughs> Very difficult. So, so I've, I, until I, until it was pointed out to me that there's a legal requirement <laughs> to, to, you know, to keep things for whatever many years it is. Um, so who's managed to really sort of build that structure around you then? I mean, because, of course, dealing with architecture involves masses of files, and maybe it's a lot more digital these days, but, I mean, certainly drawings and all those sort of things take up so much of those box files and other files. Oh, God, and plan chests. Yes, yeah, exactly. Now, I thought, you know, I eventually got all those things, and I had, and also I hired, got people to come and work with me who were, you know, RIBA. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and understood these things and, and weren't, didn't have an aversion. Uh, I remember, you know, um, buying all these lights files lights made all the files you know during pre-war for the you know the the nazis so they were sort of um had a an unfortunate <laughs> connotation but they were very efficient and, uh, through through the 90s you you started to design a wider mix of projects i mean you were doing gallery spaces exhibition spaces apartments for some notable people i think um, michael craig martin you did his place yes. didn't you the bridge that we designed at Q, oh yes very nice. the, the sackler bridge yes. or oh, it's changed its name i think but yeah. it, which is very beautiful it's yeah, a lovely so lovely it was, thing let's just move on a bit now because you're well into the 90s you've had quite a lot of you know, more important projects and then suddenly you get a call from calvin klein which is kind of a bit not the normal thing to happen but he calls you and um uh, and asks you to do some work for him yeah that i mean yeah looking back i mean that that uh, changed my life not just my career it changed everything it was an extraordinary moment really um looking back but he he, he was looking for a young uh, designer that would help him because he, he he was always interested in architecture and, and probably would have been an architect or could have been an architect so he was looking for somebody who could really translate his ideas into a store and he'd been given some books one of which was mine by ian schrager and um so if he looked me up when he was in london but i i i had a basement office because it uh, obviously was a very modest rent and and they the, the office said oh, we've got calvin klein on the phone and i said oh you know don't be ridiculous go back to work because you know they were always playing practical jokes on me you know going out and ringing up and pretending to be you know saudi arabia or whatever and wanting a huge project and um no they said no he's he's on the he's on the phone and i said you know i said again don't be ridiculous and, you know i picked it up and 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 then this voice said hi <laughs> Calvin <laughs> it's like oh my god and then I said oh do come and see me sometime and he said well I'm outside in the car <laughs> so anyway it was quite funny you went on to do his 
HQ in New York, which is, it's funny because I, looking at your work and looking at professional career, it seems to me that several things became very clear. Your work is a perfect vehicle for other things. So in your early days, galleries and artists work within your spaces work very well. And then you move on to the world of fashion. And again, your spaces are perfect for a very minimal uh, look at you know beautiful clothes i mean it's not they're never the crowded shops with everything packed in they're just hung like pieces of art i suppose um, well it was, it was interesting because calvin would would take out more and more he'd get he'd hired gabriella forte away from from armani and um which made him hopping mad and uh, and she arrived and knew how to to deal with retail. I mean, she was an expert, obviously. And um, and but Calvin went in after her and and took out a lot of stuff. See, so he, he wanted you know much more stark than than either I or Gabriella was intending for the store. It was very much helping him to have the store that he wanted. And and interestingly, you know, because I was used to before that, I was used to because there were small projects. I was used to be able to you know have what I was pretty. pretty pretty good control over everything mm. i'm not saying that, that my decisions were the, necessarily the, the best but at least they were mine mm. when you move on to a bigger scale like like a, the size of his his door there's a lot of give and take which i wasn't used to and um a, a lot of the the details were actually calvin's you know they were he, i mean he liked a lot of contrast in a lot of black and white and it was a huge learning curve for me huge and, and working on that scale and in that, you know, with that exposure and, and, and everything else that, that rode on it. Well, we'll move on to another project with scale, I think, which I, I think is another major piece of work that you did. And that's the, the Abbey of Our Lady in Novi Duvur. I think about your, your early life and going off to live with the monks in Japan. And then all those years later, you, you get contacted by a bunch of monks to come and see you because they wanted to talk to you about a project yeah well and of course you you think you know somebody's having a joke again you know because you know and that's people people's reaction when i tell them about it because they they say oh they didn't realize that you know trappist cistercian monks are, are still building new monasteries you know around the world well, having the money to build them too—that's that, extraordinary. Well, thing. they're experts at raising, and what they do, which I didn't realise, was they—they they just ask for small donations, but they ask you to to suggest twenty more people who might that they don't know who who might contribute. Kind of like a pyramid operation, yeah, they, isn't they, it? Well, yeah, they, it, it's a lot of people with small about yeah and then they also they don't they don't say if we're building a whole monastery they say we're, we're going to start on one wing of a monastery uh, and so then of course when they built that they then go come back to you and you're slightly uh, well no i wouldn't say stuck but, <laughs> but people have been very generous and, and contribute and, and carry on doing it i mean occasionally you get to somebody who who, who con- contributes a huge amount how did you how did you feel because you know a place of worship seems to me the perfect vehicle for your work. Minimal distractions. I mean, I know a lot of churches are completely over the top with stained glass windows and everything, but generally speaking, when you think of monks, it is a very stripped back existence. Long tables where they have their breakfast in silence and so forth. It does seem to fit perfectly into your your view of things. 
how did you feel getting that project? I mean, I realised immediately it's a, it's a project of a lifetime. I mean, it's, it's what you, you know, kind of a dream commission. I mean, to, 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 to get you to do a whole monastic city, you know, is... They, they never leave it. They, they live their, their whole lives and the whole time. The gardens or the, the land is, is extensive, but, um, and, but they don't leave those compounds normally. And it's a silent order, is it? Yeah, they're yeah. Trappist, yes. Wow, and that's... Then, I mean, well, actually, it makes it much easier because if, if you don't talk, you can't argue. It's, a, it's only a practical thing, the, yeah. the silence. It just, it's just makes life easier. I mean, if, if you need to talk for practical reasons, they have parloirs in, in, off the cloister. They have little boxes you can go into, like telephone booths. Oh, I see. And right. you can have a natter. And obviously... When I was working them with them, if they were outside the cloister or the the church and things like that, then they, you could have a meeting. Yeah, and they had readings, and you know, and they were addressed by the abbot and things yes. like that. So it's not, but it's a wonderful that silence. I mean, I, I, they, they let me stay for a week, um, and I actually slept in the dormitory with them, which is I've I've never heard of that happening before. So it was like it was like you know the routine was the same as they have that I experienced for a week. You know the eight offices of the day, you know, starting at three three in the morning. Wow, that's early. They wanted somebody who they thought got it. You know, they understood what they wanted, and they they didn't need me to be. I mean, I think they they presumed I was Christian, but I could have been Jewish or. You know, as long as I could do the job, I think yeah. it was probably the most important thing. I mean, I remember going up for communion and the the prior saying to me, uh, you know, just wagging his finger because <laughs> I, because I wasn't Catholic, I couldn't <laughs> I couldn't accept. The but presumably, they must communion. have seen something in order to contact you that resonated. Yeah, they, they, they 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 saw the Calvin Klein store. Oh, they did so. Yeah, well, uh, well, of course. Well, that I, seems most odd, doesn't it, for a, a bunch of... Well, of course, they, that's why English is so imprecise, because, of course, they'd seen the Calvin Klein store in a book. So they'd seen a, they'd seen a space with the two tables, which they saw that could easily be altars. And, yes, exactly. Uh, so they thought there was somebody who could, who could do the job. Because you, you design a church and you do the proportions and you materials and light and everything mm. else. And then you hope that, you know, when it's consecrated and the, the monks are using it, that it has a spiritual feel. Yes. And that they can get closer to God and and all the rest of it but there's no guarantees i mean you're it's still bricks and mortar and there's no there's no sort of magic and i think mm. it's very confusing because pe people you know feel that some of the um, secular work that i do has a spiritual feel but it doesn't i mean you, it's you know the church is spiritual the rest isn't if that makes sense well i think you you also made that uh, on another project that little wooden structure which has a cross i think cut into the end of it so that the light penetrates it at certain times yeah and it's very simple but i thought that that was incredibly spiritual 
I was brought up a Catholic. The last place I want to go is to church. Such a pity that, because of course I, I wasn't, and I and I love being in churches. No, no, I love to be. I love to go no. to churches, but I don't. I don't like to go to church with the congregation, yeah. and because being brought yeah. up a Catholic, it's drummed into you more yeah. than anything else. I wanted to move on to really your brand, and I don't really like the term brand. I prefer identity, but brand means something far greater it's the totality of how something is expressed and i think more than any other architectural designer (laughs) 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 um, you have such a clear identity when i look at your your work and buildings the interiors the book the graphics your website food recipes social media it's very consistent and considered and i just want it obviously needs rigorous discipline um uh to adhere to so uh, would you agree with that would you agree do you take that personal care over all those things because a lot of firms don't no i mean i guess it's become second nature over the years i think it was always there and and of course you know witnessing calvin and his company obviously on a huge scale different scale altogether his his attention to detail he would think nothing of taking a whole day with me to, to discuss a window detail which is more than i needed but you know he thought that was necessary and then and then you know by at eight o'clock in the evening he would say oh i'm sorry i've got to go to you know to the a design meeting for his clothes which was seemed more important to me but anyway you know the, the details are very very important yes um, but it's interesting that I don't, I mean, I am, you know, I like things, you know, done well, whatever whatever we're doing. But I'm not necessarily, um, I don't have that fastidiousness safe. You know, I don't worry about my clothes or, or, you know, I don't fuss over things. You know, they don't, I like things to be right. It's obviously a lot simpler if you hit on a set of clothes that actually you're happy with and they just become you why change if, if if it's a great shirt and a, a great sweater and shoes and that's it uh, yeah. i i think you know there's a lot of there are some I, I was writing about some various designers recently and some of them are so particularly americans so outrageous you know pink suit with with uh huge sunglasses you know it <laughs> I just think, what is going on? You know, it's more about them than the work, really. But anyway, that's just a typical kind of grumpy Englishman's idea. Um, we've mentioned the Sackler Crossing, or in fact, you did, which is a lovely sweeping thing. And I walked across it. It's, it's, it's very beautiful. You've done lots of hotels for Ian Schrager, who we've also mentioned. You've done ballet uh, sets as well, which was another uh change for you wasn't it and, and they were very beautiful um i think one yeah, was for, a, for wayne mcgregor yes that's right the, the, the royal uprouse royal ballet yeah, yeah. yeah. you've done a second world war telecommunications bunker in berlin what, <laughs> what was that what was that for that was for um uh, desiree Fuerle, who's a, a german art dealer and um he saw an opportunity Slightly ironic, putting it in a bunker, and he's a German art collector. Isn't that exactly what they did? (laughs) Yes, I I never see. see, I never. No, I didn't see that. Yes, quite. But um, 
It's funny, like, because I, I was doing the, the Catholic Church the, of the diocese in St. Moritz Church. In, oh, yes, um, yes. In um, Augsburg, yeah. in Germany. And, which, you, uh, which is another one that you, you consider to be one of your very piece, best pieces. Yes, it's, it's, uh, well, it worked out well. I mean, it's an existing building that we renovated, but, but I bumped into four nuns there, and they said, why on earth did they get an Englishman? to design a church that the English had bombed. Yeah, we bombed it. And yes, I, I oh, it well, that's, well, that's a rather nice touch, isn't it, really? Yeah, they were, they were much happier when they, when they finally got to see the finished. They approved, luckily. You hooked up with um, Diane Sujic, who, who I know you've known for a long time, and in fact has written your latest book or collaborated on it, but I think he's been there in the background a long time. And, and you were commissioned to, in competition, I think, because I had to do that, you reworked the uh, design museum, its yes. permanent home. And that's an extraordinary building to start with anyway, because you've got this massive sort of atrium area to, to, to sort of deal with in the roof structure, which is, I think it's all listed, isn't it? Isn't it, it was all listed. Yeah. And, um, and it was interesting because Dan said that, that they were going to take over this building for the design museum and they were going to have a competition. And I... I don't normally do competition. And he said, well, you, 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 you should. And I said, well, I don't do competitions. And, um, you know, he's a friend. And he's also very diffident. And, and he has a very, very nice manner of persuading people. But I suddenly realized that, that I, <laughs> it didn't seem as if I was going to have an option. I mean, the competition was huge. I mean, there were 100 people. And, and, and it was everyone... You know, and a lot of people could have done a really beautiful job. I just felt because it was him that you know that we had to put a lot more into the competition than than you would normally even do. I mean, I think there's a sort of you know in in paid competition there's some sort of rule where for you you tend to spend three times what you're given to try and have a chance of winning it. Yes, I've heard so that. I was, de- I was determined to, to spend five times as much. Oh, really? Wow. Well, I just thought I owed it to him to yeah. really have a go. And I remember going with Catherine. She very kindly drove me with, with the model to the interview once we got down to a, a short list. So I carried my model in and then, and, then she, and then she asked me how it went afterwards and she'd bought some sandwiches and we were having this sandwiches in the car. And in the rearview mirror, I saw uh, a van arrive with this gigantic <laughs> model. As a joke, I said, oh, that'll be David's. And it was David Chipperfield, and it was four times as big as our model. So I thought I'd had it then. It was shortlisted down to the two of us. Really? Oh, yeah, wow. and it was, it was either would have, well, obviously, it was very, very nice too. Mm. So it could have, could have been either of us. It felt that I was, I was nearer. I could walk every day to it. Yeah. Interestingly, I've been to it a few times, and there's that level where there's a sheer run of, I think, Carrara marble, which I think was recycled. Isn't that right? Did you? Yeah, that was used in the Commonwealth Institute, but it was also had come before that from the Imperial um, Institute or whatever. It was, yes. When it when it was, yeah, you know, celebrating the empire. It's the longest bench I've ever seen, actually. <laughs> But it looks it's popular. It's popular. I know. I took a photograph of my girlfriend at the time. No one else was sitting. There. She she sat on it, and the, the image that I took was fairly wide angle to get it all in. But it's amazing. It just goes on into the <laughs> distance, you know. The other thing that um, I think is it has been important to you is actually books, because getting noticed. One can do it through 
articles in magazines and so forth. But you've been, I think, more than most, actually, responsible for a, quite a, a large number of books. Most of them were with, with Biden. And I guess they must do pretty well because you've been with Biden now for a long time. And I, I would suspect that if they didn't do well, they wouldn't be coming back. No, they certainly wouldn't. Yeah. I only do the, do the books if I have an idea. I never th- I never th- thought of them as being a sort of promotional thing. Biden have a thing where they, if you are under contract in the sense that you part of your contract is, you, I think, is that you have to offer them... Oh, really? Wow. Um, ...the next book. You can't, you can't just go off and go with another publisher um, without discussion. You know, I'm very happy you know, with them anyway. But uh, and the production values seem to be very good. Yeah, well, they do allow me a little bit of yeah. of leeway now. At the beginning, it was a learning curve. But it's funny because I remember um, somebody coming up to me and saying, "Oh, you, uh, oh, you're the one that does the books." <laughs> Well, before that, it was you're the one that does the shop. You know, you get branded. Before uh, doing this interview, I was talking to somebody a couple of weeks ago, and they said he does very well with books. <laughs> I said, oh, "Really?" <laughs> so obviously, it's a well-known fact. Now, tell me a little bit about also your four hundred thirty thousand Instagram followers. But you take all the photographs, or more or less, don't you? And a lot I of take them, all of them. Yeah. You do. So that's quite a commitment, and you're posting virtually every day. I, I try. I don't let it become a pressure. It's just if 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 I have a, a photograph for the day, sometimes I, I go for ten days without. Mm. Not not a lot. I've seen a lot from actually from y- your home there, where you know you've got the different light changes, which is very good for what you were talking about earlier about you know a building's a building, but you've got to be in the building to yeah. experience it. Well, you've done that through a lot of those photographs because you you know you've made made views from the window and the different times of the day, you know, do that job very well. So I, I think it's well worth it. I don't know of any other so, so much, but it's obviously paid off. You're very well known everywhere. Yes, but I, I, it, it was, it's, I mean, it's very much a hobby or it was very much a hobby and it's also a way of relaxing and I've always taken photographs. Well, of course, you had the exhibition, didn't you, at the, at the store X in London? Yes. Um, which yeah. I, I went to, which is from your book Spectrum. That was another fine yeah. book, wasn't it? Which is actually the first time, really, you could say there's a lot of colour. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is. I've, ne- I've never said there isn't. I mean, no, no, yeah, no, of course there of is. Of course, you, the, the, the way colour gets into the room anyway of course. is all white. And then you've got the, all the textures of wood and surfaces and how light reacts. I can I completely get that. And now you've got this new book, Making Life Simple. But it, what it led me to think about is really areas of work because you've worked for many wealthy clients where money is plentiful so that you can do those you know, wide plank oak floors, no problem, and all the other things. So have you ever been asked to do anything sort of more humble by that i mean i don't mean exactly social housing but if someone came to you and said look we want the state of domestic properties in this country are either red brick barrett homes or fake jordan styles like the one that king charles has in poundbury in dorset which is 10 miles from me and it's like going to disneyland would you be interested is that something or definitely definitely um some of the houses that we do are very very modestly um, budgeted and for people who who don't have a lot, not many, but I would like to do more. And we were we were working on some social housing in America, 
I mean, it was it was an idea. It wasn't it wasn't really very well thought out or developed, but it could have been. Right. It could have ended up by being providing um, a lot of social housing. Um, so it's 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 there in the back of my mind. Right. And you know, and you know, I've tended to with my life tended to follow the river. Yeah. Uh, wherever it's led, it's sort of and. And I, I know you can make things happen. I haven't. I mean, I've just sat a bit. Um, but that definitely social housing would be high on the list. What about the opposite extreme, which is what I would call statement buildings? You know, the whole of the London skyline now is festooned with what you would call statement buildings. And obviously, they're vast things that go on for years. Is that something that you would ever consider doing? Well, I've... You know, skyscraper was on the list, and and we 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 designed a couple that never got built. But um, I, you know, there is there is a, a place, I suppose, for them. Or something. I I I'm signature buildings. I'm not as you were talking about. Mm. Are, are are something that attracts me particularly, mm. as you can imagine. I mean, yeah. What what are you currently about to work on, or in the not too distant future that you're excited about? Well, I'm always excited. I mean, I am incredibly spoiled, so it's always a pleasure um, what we do. I mean, I think it's very much m- more of this what we've really talked about. I mean, it's you know there are uh, some hotels, a couple of hotels, um, and you know there are you know, we're do- doing a couple of um, I don't know how you put it like uh, wine estates. Oh yes. Um, that sort of thing. Oh, I've seen the lovely vineyard that you've done. It's at the very end of your book. It's a terraced structure. Oh yeah, which is yeah, very, yeah. No, that, very lovely. Was yeah, that that is that is a private house with a oh. dr- a backdrop of a vineyard. Oh, so it's that's, not uh, that's not their vineyard. Well, well, it would, that would make it would in a way that yeah, that's a nice. I thought it was, but no. I mean, it, well, no, it is terrific. a vineyard, but it's not his. It's above and below. Him. Yeah, and I mean, I think he's got some vines as part of the garden, but but it's a, it's it's part of uh, landscaping the hillside. Coming to an end now. What advice would you give a budding young designer wanting to follow in your footsteps? And now your footsteps <laughs> have been. <laughs> you know, uh, not in a straight line. Put it that way. Do you have any any advice, any pearls of wisdom? I finally got to do exactly what I wanted to do. You know, after all that time working for my father and and being in you know places like Nagoya and so on, rather than Tokyo. I mean, I was happy happy when I got to Tokyo. Happy when I got to London. Um, I think. Just, just to do what you really enjoy doing, mm. you know, whatever part of architecture it is. I mean, there's there's room for so many different areas, isn't there? Not just practicing, but writing about it or teaching it or anything. It's just so important because if you don't enjoy what you're doing, you're not going to be good at it. I agree. Um, totally agree with that. I mean, I, I remember Crispin that I was working with, who who actually taught me at the AA. He he said, "How on earth do you do you get all these jobs?" Because he was working in, in with me in 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 the room, and I said, "Oh well, I you know I I I meet people at, you know at parties or socially." I mean, I wasn't being flippant, and I just said, "And uh, and the next day he came in late, and I said, "Oh where where is you know." what's going on sort of thing or you know how was last night and he said oh I, you know i went i went to a couple of parties <laughs> <laughs> oh well so that's a good piece of advice go to parties <laughs> well, <laughs> well he didn't come back with any jobs no I, I want to end with a bit of frivolity if you if you can bear with me sure. you were born under 
the sign of uh, Taurus, right? Taurus, yeah. So I just wanted to see whether you agree with these statements about Taurians. They're not fond of authority. True. They can take their pleasure-seeking way too far. Possibly. Are trustworthy and dependable. Yes. Are patient, reliable, and very thorough. Gosh, uh, that wouldn't be me. If I'm honest. Very thorough, no? Oh, yes. I think, yeah. well, definitely. That bit, def- yes. Definitely thorough, yeah. It's how you interpret it. Yeah. Yeah, def- yeah no. Okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, definitely. Um, obsessional, obsessional. They appreciate integrity. Yes. They are stubborn. Uh, probably. Not afraid to stick to their guns. Uh, definitely. And lastly, are perfectionists. Uh, definitely. Well, then there you go. Um, I I think what, what's clear talking to you is that, you know, the tenacity of your, your vision over, well, I think it's almost 40 years now, isn't it? Late, yeah. mid to late 30s. Anyway, anyway you've quietly ploughed through all of those architectural noises that go on around you to create what I think that the architectural theorist Christopher Alexander described as a timeless way of building. So that's what I... I think about you. Well, that's very flattering. It's yeah, a very nice description. Anyway, John Pawson, thank you very much for sharing your RDI insights. It's been a pleasure. Well, you're very, very welcome. Thank you for listening. 